the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has room. He's got one man to beat. Now he pitches to Flanagan, and he may take it all the way. Flanagan's in for the touchdown. Stewart with time. Let's it go. He's got three people down there. The ball's up in the air. Take a shot downfield. And it is held in by Bryce Bobo. What a one-handed catch. Remember that for your highlight show tonight. Brukop to the corner for Carrington. Intercepted. Colorado got it. Witherspoon. With the biggest play in Colorado football for years. There's a snap. snap. It's by Nip. He has to chase it inside the 10. He dives on it. It is loose, and it is picked up by Jacob Callier. Callier's got it to the four-yard line. A turnover, and the freshman with another big play for Colorado. Welcome into a new Buff Stampede Radio. Adam Mustard Tiger, publisher of BuffStampede.com, here with fan correspondent Tyler Ziskin. Tyler. When you look at this Washington game, do you look at it more as a game that just kind of snowballed out of control in the second half, or do you look at the result, the final score of that football game, as a major concern? I don't think it's a major concern. Um, I don't even know if it really snowballed so much as a few things just went wrong. I mean, football's really simple. We talk about it a lot. You can't turn the ball over three times. You can't get a punt blocked for a touchdown, basically. Um, and, you know, Washington's bigger and stronger than us. We knew it going in. If you leave the defense on the field the whole game in the second half and don't do anything creative offensively to get past the 50, they're going to get run down, and that's pretty much what happened. I mean, I, yes, you have Washington at home. Yes, you played well enough to have the lead in the first half, but there are a lot of teams that are going to get smoked by Washington, so I don't understand the overreaction. Well, I think it snowballed in the sense that even they had made a bunch of mistakes and it was still, they were only facing a seven-point deficit. And then pretty quickly, all of a sudden you look up, it's a 27-point deficit that they're they're dealing with. Really going to kind of break down our reaction to the reaction of certain fans and also talk about maybe things that are true concerns for this football Mm -hmm. team after four games. Uh, You mentioned the fact that when a team blocks a punt, it's, it's very hard to win that. Somebody posted on our message board that the team that blocks a punt wins 90% of the time. I tried to like research that and I found a few articles, but they were, they're outdated. They were like five or six years, but still that's a pretty alarming statistic right there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would think more often than not, right. A punt block leads you to believe that there's a team that's a lot more athletic and a lot bigger. So I would be curious to see what those numbers were in maybe conference games or in power five conferences, you know, opponents next to each other rather than smaller schools. I don't know if that's included in there or not, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a huge momentum swing in the game. We were completely dominating the game up until that point. It's the middle of the second quarter. We're up 7-0. Probably should have had more points at that point, honestly. And you punted away, and outside of that, they did a good job avoiding Dante Pettis. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of punts total, but... Um, yeah, Pettis you know, didn't have a return in the, in, the, in the game. You can't avoid Pettis by giving up a touchdown. Right. Like, that's yeah. not getting the job done, so... Yeah, I mean, that was obviously a huge part of the game. Um, also, Montez sliding on the play before that to make it a fourth down, you can't do that. You just can't. Yeah. Like, I understand you want him to be safe, and you can't. He, he could have just dove forward. Would have been totally fine there. You just can't, in a game against Washington, give up free downs like that. Yeah. That play specifically is just inexperience. Steven Montez in week one through two, is definitely not sliding, but the coaches have been trying to hammer into his head that he's right. got to get down. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to do the right thing. He did take ownership of that after yeah. the game and said, I flat out can't do that. But it's hard to hammer the kid when he's trying to do the right yeah, thing. Yeah, and he also ran the ball, I thought, very effectively throughout the game despite that. I mean, he probably had, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, probably 70 yards rushing, 60, 70 yards rushing. He was moving the ball, got a few key third downs. Um, so from that aspect... I really didn't think he played as bad as some people are claiming. I mean, that first pick, that was obviously crucial as well. Philip Lindsay's got to catch that ball. I mean, right in your hands on a swing pass, you can't drop that. And you definitely can't drop it right into a defender's hands, basically. You know, the second one, 
he is getting tackled around the ankles. They're down going to half. He's trying to make a late play, and he throws, you know, it was a poorly thrown ball and not a good decision, but there was also a hold on that play. There's a minute left. You're going to be on first and 20. Chances of us scoring there aren't great, and that one didn't bite you, so not the end of the world. It's really that pick six in the third quarter that really pretty much – I didn't even really put it out of reach. There was still time to come back, but you just can't miss that defensive assignment. Yeah. And Mike McIntyre went into great detail explaining what happened on that play during his weekly press conference. Basically said that Washington had set that up. They had got all out blitz in the previous series. Yeah. And then it just at the last split second, they dropped back. And, and yep. again, it goes back to Montez's youth just not – I mean, that's a play that Persefo Lufau makes as a sophomore but doesn't as a senior, right? right? Yeah, and I actually watched – I rewatched the game last night and won that play four or five different times. The call from Washington was perfect. Dropped two guys into coverage. Everyone was talking about how, you know, he obviously dropped off the slant. Everyone was like, oh, he should have thrown it further inside. There actually was a linebacker dropping back into that slant. It was just a perfectly called defensive play. He would have had to have gone to the other side of the field to get somebody on the right side who was open. But, I mean, that's just, with time, he'll figure that out. But that was just really a great call by the Washington defense as well. There's some solid coaches in the Pac-12, but... At this point, can we say that Chris Peterson's unquestionably the best coach in the conference? I would say so. He's he just they don't make mistakes. I mean, part of that is how good the talent is there. Um, he has big time guys at all the right positions: linebacker, defensive tackle. You know, one guy usually in the secondary is always elite, and then you have a pretty good quarterback. You got a great running back, and usually their offensive line is massive. That's a good way to build quality football teams, and he seems to do that everywhere he goes. I might go Kyle Whittingham. Number two? Yeah, he'd be up there for me, for sure. David well. Shaw, of course, yeah, David in the Shaw conversation. David Shaw would probably be two for me. But, I mean, those three are probably the front runners right now. So there, there's been kind of a wide variety of reaction from the fan base. Some people is going as far and as ludicrous as saying that Mike McIntyre is Dan Hawkins 2.0. Yeah, that's a joke. I, I covered Dan Hawkins for five years. I've covered Mike McIntyre for nearly five years. Aside from the fact that they both don't drink and they're kind of football monks in a sense – that's pretty much the only comparison I can think of between the two. Yeah, I mean, I understand being mad and frustrated. You obviously want your team to win. But, I mean, this was a three-point game at halftime against a team ranked in the top ten. I don't, I don't understand what we're doing here. I, we watched this team be down by 40 points at halftime like three years ago, multiple times. Like, I don't. What are we doing? Yeah. So, I'm trying to think of some of the different criticisms I've seen. I Certainly, I, I think uh, there's... There's an overreaction when, when strongly criticizing the play calling on Saturday. You watch that first drive, uh, an 11-play, 75-yard drive, where they I, I think it was about five different plays we saw that we hadn't seen in the previous three right. weeks. But then you have the overthrow on Devin Ross. You have Philip Lindsay dropping the ball, interception. Montez making a horrible decision. Again, the old line not playing all that great up front. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean how do you how do you – do a, job, a better job play calling when that's what's happening on the field. Yeah, the one that you didn't mention that was really key in the game. I think it was 17-7 at this point in the game. There was like six minutes left or so in the third quarter. Uh, Montez throws a beautiful pass to Shea Fields up to the right side of the field on a slant. Hits him right in the hands. Would have been a first and goal at like the eight-yard line, and he drops it. Next play... Montez slips down on third down, and we have to kick a 50-yarder. Now, luckily, it went in, so it's still 17-10, to 10, but you're first in goal if Shea does his job there. I mean, why like hit him right in the yeah. hands, right in the chest. Couldn't have been a more perfectly thrown ball. If you score there, it's 17-14, to 14, and this is a much different ball game. You have momentum, and Montez doesn't feel like he needs to, you know, we're down a touchdown there. He, you know, we're trying to get back in the game. If it's 17-14, there's a lot of time left. So that was big, too, and Shea doesn't normally make that play. That has to be the first time that Shea Fields and Philip Lindsay have dropped a pass in the same game, right? I mean, yeah, pretty close, especially, you know, sometimes there's 50-50 balls that maybe they could have had. Those were, you got to catch that. There's right. no real argument against it. And, yeah, I mean, I think, I will say this. We had a lot of success running the ball outside the tackles in that game, and we went away from it for most of the third quarter. Uh, Philip Lindsay trying to go... Our guards and center, you know, that's our concern right now, I think, on the offensive line. And they kept trying to go into Greg Gaines and Vita Vea, two of their best players, and it wasn't working. And they just kept trying to go back to that. So I didn't really love that. And they got a little bit 
um, predictable with those screen passes in the third as well. Like they, they have to open it up and go downfield a little bit more because otherwise if they're not afraid you're going to go downfield, they're not going to guard it. And then you're much easier to defend. So the only, those are the only two things I really noticed. Um, and we'll see if they get that figured out, but you got to take advantage of Montez's arm a little bit. Now he hasn't been that accurate there, but you got to at least try it a few times. I, I was I kind of did a double take when I saw the starting online and kind of cringed when I know Aaron Hagler's gained weight, but to play guard against that yeah. Washington defensive line no. with Kaiser, who he's the kids worked his butt off, but I mean it's not a stretch to say that he's a Mountain West caliber offensive lineman, right? Yeah, I mean they got watching the game back. The right side of the line got blown up several times. I mean they had that one sequence where they had back to back sacks. Josh Kaiser got absolutely mauled on both of those. Hagler didn't have a great game, and even Tim Lanott was terrible snapping the ball. And if you're a quick hit, you know, a quick hit offense where you're trying to get the ball out to the flat really quickly and you're catching everything at your ankles, it's going to make the offense look a lot more difficult to run than it is. Now, I do think their fans have certainly have the right to be concerned about this offense. This is four straight games where they've had mistakes plague them in, in pretty sizable stretches. Yeah. Uh, that comes back to coaching. I mean, these are the guys that are. are Fix it, trying to cinch up those little details. Uh, sorry for the Dan Hawkins-ism there. But, I mean, it, my criticism on the co- offensive coaches is not on play calling. It's more on getting these guys, getting those mistakes corrected and right. it's, instead of going on for an entire month. Uh, in terms of other things that I've seen, I've seen some reaction criticizing Clayton Adams as the offensive line coach. I think at, at least at this stage, a season and four games into his tenure as on the offensive line coach, I think that's premature. When he inherited that group, I'm going to, again, use the Mountain West analogy. That was not a Pac-12 group. He is up their level of recruiting there, bringing in the Grant Paulies, the William Shermans, the Grant, uh, the Jake Morettis of the world. But that's not like a receiver fix. You have to develop those guys over mm-hmm. time. Even Timmy Lanat Jr. redshirted his first year on campus. Yeah. I think the O-line is going to be good under Clayton Adams, but you got to give him more time than a season and four games to start really – uh, you know, criticizing him. Yeah, I mean, you're starting two te- two sophomores, and another guy doesn't have a ton of experience, and you're kind of rotating back and forth between a lot of guys right now too. So, we had higher expectations. Obviously, Jonathan Huckins not working out the way we wanted so far has been the biggest issue. I mean, now you're playing a guy that's not really ready to go. Uh, we'll see how they get it together throughout the season. I mean, you know, going against Vita Bay and Greg Gaines will make a lot of teams look bad. So, I'll be curious to see if they improve moving forward. Those are, I mean, Vay is going to be a first-round pick. Gaines is probably a second-day pick, third-day pick. He's going to be an NFL guy, too. So, I don't know. It, it's hard to really expect those guys to dominate. I would have liked to have seen them hold their own a little bit more. But we'll see how it plays out. In terms of the defensive line, let's face it, when they go up against these college football playoff caliber teams like Washington and USC, they're going to get pushed off the line. They don't, I don't think they've cultivated enough – Depth in, in real, like you know, again, kind of going back to the the recruiting there just has not been stellar in recent years. You, you keep having to go to the junior college yeah. ranks to, to to reload. That's a group that's just conti- going to be continually exposed in these type of games. Yeah, and I thought they stuck with the nickel packages a little bit too long in this game. I mean, Ryan Muller's great in a lot of different ways, but if he's the guy who's trying to set your edge against a three hundred and thirty pound left tackle. You just can't expect him to win that battle. It's not going to happen. And you saw them kept going kind of right at where he was sitting on the edge, especially in the third quarter. Um, and Taron Hasselbeck, they were going after him a lot as well. You know, you have you have to make some adjustments there and stop him a few times, and then you can bring back Ryan Muller in on the third down situation yeah. if you need to. I had a couple of tweets my direction during the game that suggested that it's time for Sam Neuer to take over. Definitely <laughs> an overreaction at this stage. Yes, it is. I mean, yeah, Montez has thrown a ton of picks. I can think of it. Well, least. he's he has six total, and I would say four of them are his fault. Yeah, They're two for sure were not. Yeah. Um, I would say at least one more was like, okay, you're trying to make a play at the end of a half. I can live with that, um, especially since he was being tackled at the time he threw it. Um, you know, that's still more than you would like to see, but guys got to catch balls too. For me, it's not necessarily those four picks that are his fault. It's that he's not – he doesn't have more touchdowns right. to go along with that, obviously. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, – is there any other 
real concerns you see at this point uh, th- that people wouldn't be overreacting if they have strong opinions? About I mean, they got to do a better job on their on the r- other side of the 50. I mean, they've been moving the ball really well getting to the 50-yard line, and then they stall out consistently. It seems like they always run the exact same four plays there once they get across the 50. Try to hammer Phil inside. Doesn't work second and eight. Roll out, you know, see if somebody's open. If not, you know, it, they're, they got to get more creative there. They're doing the same type of stuff once they get to that 50-yard marker every time. I'd like to see them switch that up because, obviously, they're mo- the, yardage-wise, they're moving the ball fairly well. But you got to be able to put up points at the end of those drafts. Last year, after the Michigan punting debacle, we saw Alex Kinney really struggle the rest of the season. You, you obviously got to hope that doesn't happen again to him this year because those punts can, can rattle a punter for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... The second time out, he looked fine. Obviously, he kicked it out of bounds like he was supposed to. It was a little short, but I would be surprised. I mean, that obviously blatantly was not his fault. I mean, Brett Towns got absolutely mauled. <laughs> I hope they don't you do that again. It happened to him twice. Yeah. He got blown up. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, yeah, I, hopefully they're not blaming him for that because that would be a joke. It's not his fault that the guy got demolished in front of him, but we'll see. So, all that said, the buffs are three and one like we expected at this point. Right. Uh, how pivotal is this UCLA contest? Uh, if you want to stay in a competitive situation to win the Pac-12 South, it's very pivotal. Um, for me, who's predicting us to win seven games or six or seven games, you know, seven or eight games, whatever it may be, not all that pivotal, I guess I would say. Um, I picked them to lose this game and win seven prior to the year. So, again, I don't think much that happens in this game is going to change my perception on the season unless they really struggle to score. Uh, you know, it's big to get this win. If you can get a road with W against a team in your division that's competing for, you know, that second spot behind USC right now, that's obviously huge for the future of your program. And you've got a couple winnable uh, home games coming up. You've got Oregon State on the road coming up. If you would get this UCLA game, you could definitely get on a little bit of a run. Yeah, I think it's a, a huge game just from the standpoint you lose – you worry about the locker room a little bit more. Um, these are 18 to 22 year old kids that ride momentum, or sometimes they can, uh, you know, they can go the other direction. But a win would be so massive. I mean, you look at there's three Pac-12 South programs that already have two losses. You beat UCLA. You basically put yourself in that top group with a USC, a, a, a Utah. Not not in terms of standings necessarily, but just in terms of projecting and kind of where where these right. programs are trending. Yeah, I mean, I think. It's obviously huge because you have this UCLA game, you come home to Cal, or no, Arizona, sorry. Then you go to Oregon State, then you go back to Cal. Like that, if you get that UCLA game, those next three look very winnable. All of a sudden, you're sitting at 7-1. and one. I mean, you're going to be ranked, obviously, at that point, and you're feeling pretty comfortable about where you sit for the future of this program. So I think potentially if you lose this UCLA game, and the Cavs look pretty tough. You don't want to go into that game without confidence. This season could get away from you in a little bit of a hurry yeah. as well. Josh Rosen or Sam Darnold, who, who's more talented? Who's the, the better pro prospect? Two, two different questions. Well, there. Josh Rosen is more talented for sure, um, just like natural talent, ability to make all the plays. I think Sam Darnold's a better quarterback right now, although he's been struggling mm-hmm. a little bit this year. Yeah, he just doesn't have the weapons. I don't think that he had last year as well, which is part of it. It's got a little more of a hitch to his release. But I just think in crucial moments, he always makes the big play. Yeah. Like whenever the game is close, he always puts it out of reach when the time is necessary. And I haven't seen that from Rosen yet. I don't think there's any question if you're going into a a big game, I think Sam Darnold gives you a better chance to win that football game. Uh, UCLA's defense, conversely, has been horrible this season. They're last in the Pac-12 in total defense and scoring defense. In fact, there's only five teams nationally that have given up more yards and points so far, and none of those five teams that are below them in terms of scoring defense, total defense, are power conference teams. So a lot of those teams have been having to play up better competition. So you can make the case they've been the worst defense in the country through four weeks. Yeah, so we've talked about this many times. If we can't get right to some degree against UCLA, there's got to be some major concerns for sure. UCLA, are they the most underachieving team in the country? You look at their recruiting <laughs> rankings, and I went back five years, so this would include guys that would be redshirt seniors all the way through true freshmen. They've had top 20 classes each of those five years. They've ranked 
uh, seventh back in 2013, 18th in 2014, 12th in 2015, 13th in 2016, 20th last year. And they're in the top four every year in the Pac-12. One year in, back in 2013, they were the top-ranked recruiting team. Now, we, you know, obviously this is proof that that's not the be-all, end-all, but there's been enough studies that show that the higher ranked a recruit is, the better chance he has to be all-conference, the better chance he has right. to be a pro. So this is not translating, and that does not, these numbers don't look good for Jim Mora. Yeah, I mean, Texas stands out to me as well as a team that's really underachieved of late, especially compared to recruiting rankings. Um, I mean, up until last year, Michigan would have been on that list as well from the previous five years. You know, obviously, last year they had a huge year, so that was big for them. But, yeah, I mean, they've, they've definitely got to be up there. To have that talent in your backyard and to yeah. be, what, like a 500 team probably throughout yeah. that Ten- stretch? Tennessee team. probably would be yeah. on that list somewhere, too. Tennessee's been on that list for a really long time. Yeah. So, buffstampede.com is now officially part of 247sports.com. No, we did not move to a new network. It's basically just merging. If you didn't know, CBS owns both scout.com and 247sports.com, and they made the decision that that they would go we would all go under the 24/7 Sports umbrella. We made the move on Tuesday night. There's still some scout sites that haven't moved yet, but within the next couple months, scout is going to cease to exist. I think the scout brand was better, but I like the 24/7 Sports name better. <laughs> okay. Fair well, just enough. because I'm, I'm sick of recruits thinking that I'm going to get them a scholarship. And right. when you have the name, I work for scout.com, they kind of yeah. think that you have that pull. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think 247 is a little more progressive with how they've approached, I think, the recruiting rankings, you know, bringing in some newer... How they how they rank the guys is a little bit different. Some of the features they have haven't been done before. So f- from that perspective, I think it's pretty cool. Um, we'll see if they continue to do good things, and we're excited yeah. about the small change that there will be. Brandon Huffman, Greg Biggins, uh, Greg Powers, uh, Gabe Brooks, all the recruiting analysts you see stop by our board are still on board, and basically now we add the 24-7 analysts uh barton simmons does a good job uh, a bunch of different guys that uh, that i don't know all that well yet but will over over the course of time i hope that brandon huffman and greg biggins have a lot of pull in the rankings now for 24 7 because i think just kind of being more west coast based right. than some of the other networks we always kind of have it had a small advantage in terms of being able to see these recruits more in person than some of those other analysts so hopefully that stays the same um but yeah no it's it's, it's pretty exciting I had a chance to talk with Nate Landman, one of the true freshmen that are seeing action for the Buffaloes this season, to talk to him about that experience. Nate, uh, what has this experience been like playing as a true freshman here at CU? Uh, it's been a great experience. Um, definitely learning the game. I have great teachers, uh, Coach Ellis and Coach Elliott, great coaches, and also following along with Rick Campbell and Drew. They're great role models and show me how to play the game right. What's the most difficult part of that transition going from high school to this level? Um, I'd say the speed, speed of the game, and not just recognizing, uh, not knowing what you're doing, but also knowing what the offense is doing beforehand. Was there a point in summer where you felt like you you could help this team as a true freshman? Was there any kind of revelation or big moment for you, maybe during the summer or during camp? Um, I felt that when we had the scrimmages in Folsom, I felt that I showed my talent off, and I showed I felt that um, I proved myself that I could be a part of the team and have a can contribute early on. And are you on a lot of different special teams units? How many uh, starting uh, special teams units are you on? As of right now, I'm just on kickoff return. Okay. Um, and then just in terms of defensively, are you playing both Jack and, and Mike, or, or do, do you move around a little bit? Uh, I primarily stick to Mike, So yeah. and then Akil. I play along the side Akil's at Jack. Okay. What, what are kind of the, the keys in that role to, to have success? Um, you got to be a leader on the field. you got to know what everyone else is doing as long as, as, long as yourself. Um, and also communication, not only with the D-line, but also with the secondary is a big key. Kind of going back to your recruiting process, it seemed like you uh, weren't one of those guys that was just chasing offers. It seemed like you just kind of went through the process. Uh, is, is that correct? Yeah. The process with me, I, was, I wasn't into the big offers. I was just focused on the one school I wanted to go to. And I fell in love with Colorado right at the beginning, and it was a great fit. Now, Cal tried to make a late run at you. Just how stressful was that leading up to, to signing day? It was pretty stressful, but in my heart and my mind, I always knew that Colorado was a place to be. So going through that, I gave, I gave him a look, but I always knew this would be my home. What did, what was it that really made CU seem like the, the better fit for you? Um, 
along with a uh, chance to come play early because the linebacker depth was kind of short, um, and the coaching staff. I mean, Coach Mack is the, is the best coach I've, I've talked to. Him. He's, he they, uh, they kept the recruiting process pretty truthful, and I just felt more at home here. Where are you at now, height and weight-wise, and what do you think is going to be kind of the ultimate goal for you to, to play that position? What, what's the ideal weight? Um, I'm about like 6'3", like 220, and I hope to get up next year 240, 235. You're uh, rooming with John Van Deest, is that correct? Yes, sir. What, what is that like, uh, you know, having another inside linebacker? Do you guys kind of bounce a lot of stuff uh, you know, off each other? Yeah, it was great, especially uh, early on in the process where we were struggling to learn the defense. There's a lot to, a lot to learn, and we had each other just to bounce off ideas, and we could study together, and it's great having that, that, mutual, that mutual instinct, I guess. You're from Northern California, but you are going back to California this week. Uh, I would imagine since the first time since you uh, came out here for Summer Bridge. Yeah, that would be the first time. Actually, I went back. We had we had one week. We were able to go back during summer, okay. and I went back home. What do you think it's going to be like getting on a plane, going on a, a road trip for the first time as a college football player? It'll be exciting, but as Coach Max talks uh, refers to it, he, he refers to it as a business trip. So I'll be focused and ready and just, just ready to go. You ever been to the Rose Bowl before? I have not. What, what do you think it's going to be like playing in that stadium for the first time? It'll be a great experience. Um, just saying, I played in the Rose Bowl. But, uh, before, I'll, I'll be go out and take a look and just get all that pre-jitters out and then be ready to play. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Thank you. Well, you heard it there. CU is better than Cal, Nate Landon. <laughs> he had that uh, a lot of pressure late in the process from Cal trying to get him. He was the NorCal Defensive Player of the Year last season. It's, not, it's been tough. It's tough to pull kids out of that area. I know Cal, their athletic department's struggling financially, but it's tough to pull kids out of that area. Yeah, definitely. We've struggled with uh, battles with Cal in the past in basketball and football. So uh, it's nice to always get kids from up north. Uh, McIntyre obviously has some experience there. He's done a good job with some of those San Jose kids and Sacramento kids too. Yeah, Clayton Adams, the uh, primary recruiter there, uh, was able to uh, fight off the Golden Bears there in the end of the recruiting process. Let's jump into the Buff Stampede mailbag. Our first question is from MF Buff. Can you get a sense why the culture has changed from last year to this year? Did we just have more true leaders last season than we do this season? Is it a maturity issue we have with certain players who are were elected captains? I just don't see the desire in this year's team to be great. Somebody had mentioned it earlier on the message board, but it does remind me of the 0-2 team a bit. Although I still think there was more talent on that team than this one. It's never a good look when you have two team captains suspended for the first two games of the season. So it's yeah, I'm not in that locker room though, so it's 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 hard to answer this question with with 100 certainty. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of an overreaction here. Like, I don't think these kids are going out and trying to lose ball games. They want to win. I think the reality is we're confusing desire with last year's team had a lot of guys with a lot of experience, and there was a lot of NFL talent on that team that this year's group doesn't have. You know, sometimes you're just not as talented as the guy you replaced, and in some spots that's true this year. Yeah, there's I mean, guys like Philip Lindsay and, and Rick Gambo are really good leaders. I don't know if the, the culture has changed dramatically or just slightly, and, and what happens if you win at UCLA and you go on this run? Does it all of a sudden look like the culture is the same as it was last year? It's Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my point. Like People are overreacting to one specific instance where we had a rough second half. Um, I mean, if this if the game ends up we don't give away those lower, those last fourth quarter touchdowns and you know it's like twenty four to ten are people really this upset? And certainly, Steven Montez as a leader is different than Sefo Lufau. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's never we've ne- we'll never see another quarterback as tough as Sefo Lufau ever come through the program. So yeah. Steven's going to do it from more of a, I don't know if cocky is the right word, just more. He's got more bravado, and he's just more animated out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, he's people forget he's a sophomore. Like, this isn't – you're not replacing senior Seth Lufau with sophomore Steven Montez and immediately getting better. That's just not realistic. Buff predictor. First, ask something I've only put on the premium board. His other question was, when can we expect this offense to put it together? I thought I saw flashes against Washington, certainly in that brilliant first drive. While we seem so far to approach, while we seem so far to approach the preseason hype, it's got to happen this Saturday, right? Otherwise, yeah, yeah I mean, 
I don't know if sky's the falling, but it, the sky is falling. But you're definitely really, yeah. really, really worried about this this team. Yeah, man. We've seen. I talked about. I, did, I was concerned we didn't have a number one wide receiver going into the year, and we've seen a little bit of that. Um, none of these guys have really had huge breakout games to this point. Bryce Bobo hasn't been as involved as we were looking forward to, and they haven't used Shea on the deep ball as much as in years past. Winfrey looked pretty comfortable in that slot, which was nice to see. I wasn't really that high on that. I, we didn't know Jay McIntyre was hurt, so yeah. um, that obviously had a little bit to do with it, but he looked fairly comfortable. Um, if Montez could get it in front of him a little bit more, a few of those eight-yarders would have been 16 or 17, but they'll get it going. I think there's not as much separation as you would like to see, but they're also running the same play four or five times. Like you got to you got to open it up, use some more slants, get to the outside a little bit more, use Montez's rollout capabilities, get the ball down the field. DBW Buff had this question. What could have Montez done to limit Washington's feature back from going off for 200 yards at 7.5 yards per carry? It seems when I read the boards, the loss was all his fault. During the game, the only player I saw Matt go off on was Steven. What does he need to do to fix our defense? I'm sure the punt block was his fault too. Is there something he can do to help Coach Mack in the punting game? <laughs> so uh, heavy, heavy sarcasm there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that that that's always the way it is. The quarterback and the coach are always the lightning rod. It just is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I agree with him for the most part, but I also, I mean, you can't turn the ball over three times and put your defense back on the field in five seconds multiple times in a game. You're going to get those guys tired. So part of that is on Montez. Now, obviously, all the mistakes weren't his fault. We had drops, um, you know, things, you know, things like that happened throughout the game. Penalties. Uh, you obviously have to do a better job against the run, but if you force your defense to be on the field that much in the second half, you're going to gas them out a little bit too. So part of that is on Steven, definitely. And to his credit, he took full responsibility in the post-game press conference. Mm-hmm. That's that's showing some form of leadership as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, well, you got to get better. I'll never forget. When Kate Absey, I think he only started one game at CU, right? It was the Washington State game. He came in the USC game after Cepho got hurt, and he got that start. And then Brian Howell asked him after the game, it seemed like you locked into Nelson Spruce quite a bit in that game. And Kate Absey comes out and gives him a quote that says, I didn't rely on him enough. Those other receivers weren't doing anything. (laughs) You don't want that from your quarterback. So it's good. Even when the offensive line has struggled this season, and it's very clear to anybody with two eyeballs, Montez still kind of defends those guys. So that, that's a good quality that he has. And then McIntyre brought this up when he threw the pick six to see his initial reaction to, instead of Salk to really go after him. That's another positive sign from a, a young guy that, that, again, is trying to develop. Uh, Andrew S. Buff 1 said, Umu dot 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 WTF. Seriously, why the plus 14, li- or, yeah, plus 14 line in Vegas? What do they know that I don't? I double-checked as of 11.25 a.m. on Wednesday, according to Vegas Insider, UCLA's favored by seven points in all eight sportsbooks they track. So uh, that that's it's a seven-point line, not 14. I thought it was going to be about in that neighborhood. It's a little high. I thought it was going to open somewhere in four-and-a-half range, which I think it did, actually, and it, moved up, it to, mm-hmm. moved up to seven, which I think is a little bit of an overreaction, honestly. We didn't look great last week, but few plays, and that game's a lot closer. UCLA has struggled multiple times this year. Can't stop anybody. And by the way, they also played Stanford, Stanford so the body blow theory comes into effect here as well. I didn't predict us to win this game, but it would not surprise me even remotely to keep this within a touchdown. Nippus13 asked, Has anyone on offense exceeded your preseason expectations in terms of individual performance on the field? No. And that's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, I would say no as well. <laughs> Um, which, yes, is a problem. <laughs> Definitely. So I, I started then thinking, okay, who on the entire football team has exceeded my expectations? And there were really only three to five players that, that I would say that James Stefano, kicker, obviously we didn't expect him to be seven of his first eight. Yeah. Jack linebacker Drew Lewis we thought was going to be a major concern. He's been fantastic this season. Yeah, he was rewatching that Washington game again. He was the best player on the field. Absolutely huge game. He had one key missed tackle. Beyond that, though, he was absolutely electric. And Trey uh, Udofia, outside of that first half against CSU, for a redshirt freshman out there, the fact you don't notice him is is pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure. He's had a huge year. I think Leo Jackson has probably yeah. been, you know, if not 
equal to expectations slightly above. And then Isaiah Oliver, we expected to have a huge year, but he's been pretty legit as well. I mean, people are you. He really shut down Dante Pettis in that game. I think that says all you need to know about his NFL prospects. Yeah. He's probably going to be gone. Him giving up year. a couple plays on the UNC game kind of puts him where my expectations were because I did have really high expectations. Um, yeah, I had Leo Jackson as a possibility, and then Evan Worthington too, although I'd kind of developed high expectations for those two right. guys throughout camp. All right, let's move along. J-Dub, 925. By yourself, CU's offense will prove to be better in conference play than last year. So looking back to last year, CU ranked number seven in the conference in scoring offense at 31.1 points per game. And then they ranked number six, so the top half, bottom half of the top half in the conference in total offense with an average of 437.1 yards per game. Compare that to this year through four weeks, they ranked number 11 in both those categories, 26.2 points per game and 413.8 yards per game, which I was actually a little bit surprised. It's only a five less than a five-point difference. I was expecting that to be even more, a little bit more dramatic. Obviously, the inferior opponents would make, lead you to think that this team is sure to score a lot more points than they have. Yeah, I mean, you have the we scored 10 against Stanford. That USC game we scored yeah, was somewhere right. like 12 or th- like It wasn't that 13, maybe. So there were some low-scoring games in there. I mean, we definitely defensively dominated most of the ball games last year. This is a great question because I've really put thought into this, and I'm having a hard time picking it either yeah. side. Yeah, I mean, I think they'll probably finish behind last year slightly. Um, just because, I mean, in the yardage, I figure it'll be pretty similar. But senior leadership is how you turn field goals into touchdowns. We don't have that that as much this year running the show. So um, I can see it being a little bit down. I talked about that at the beginning of the year that I thought the offense wasn't going to be much better than last year, if at all. Um, and so far, so far, it's been a little more dramatic than we wanted, but... I think they'll get it going a little bit more. Obviously, the Pac-12 traditionally has some softer defenses. So you get Oregon State coming up. You have UCLA coming up. You have Arizona coming up. You have Arizona State coming up. All teams that give up points. So yeah. um, hopefully they can get right in that little stretch there. So you're conflicted, but you're you're selling this. Yeah, I, I think it's going to end up being pretty similar, but I, I would not say they're going to be above last year. I'm conflicted, but just to be contrarian, I'll buy um, – You'd kind of alluded to this. There's six Pac-12 teams giving up more than 370 yards per game right now. So there's a lot of bad defenses in this conference. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if they play like they did the last four weeks, then that's not going to happen. But I'm going to take a guess and say that they they clean up some of that stuff. Oli Buff asked, please share your opinions on the development of the defensive line overall. It, It goes back to recruiting for me. And I don't really have a huge issue with what's happened with the D-line so far. I mean, they were good in the first three games. They were good in the first half of the Washington game. I mean, Miles Gaskin is really good. I mean, sometimes you just have to allow that to be true. Their offensive line hadn't looked great, but they got going in the defense. They were really tired. getting pushed back three, four yards, though. Yeah, I mean, you, you only had Malumba for a half. You don't have Umu out there. Like, the, the rotation that you wanted – you like those guys are getting tired out, and they were on the field too much. Like I, I think more often than not that D line will be fine. I, I don't think we expected them to be great this year, and they're not going to be. But I think they're going to be fine. They need to do a better job of recruiting the prep ranks, and I know that's a hard place. There's not a ton of defensive line recruiting might be the hardest area, and some of those kids have great issues. I understand the the, the challenges there, but bottom line, they need to bring in more high school kids that can develop in a couple years. Similar to a Frank Umu that obviously keep those kids from getting in trouble, but that's a concern for me with this program. Ralphie's running asked, which dismissal do you believe has the bigger impact, Frank Umu or Anthony Jewel Meese? So this question is going to be clear later on the season. Where where do they stay more healthy? Where do they suffer some injuries? If it's on the D-line, then clearly Frank Umu is the bigger dismissal. If one of their starting two cornerbacks go down, then in my opinion, clearly Joel Meese's. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think Joel Meese is obviously a bigger impact in the special teams as well. I mean, our kickoff return game did not, not look great in that Washington game. That could have been weather. We'll see. But you can't drop the ball in the goal line three times. Um, obviously, Joel Meese is explosive there and helps. Umu, we heard that he might start. We heard he was going to be in the rotation, but we never really saw him, so it's hard to really say. Uh, I 
we'll see if those guys are back next year. We never really know. How, we're not sure if how yeah. that's going to play out. But I, to me, my answer would be Joel Meese right now. The sad thing is that, in my opinion, they need some nasty up front defensively. And Umu has that. He just used it in the wrong way. It's, But I had covered his recruitment and, and didn't spend a ton of time around him. But I was around him enough. Went down to 6-0 multiple times. And I really hope that he figures it all out. And you'd love to see him have that Evan Worthington second chance and, and really kind of – I mean, with Samson Kafavalo, how many times did he get in trouble and he kept getting chances, right? Yeah. All right, Tyler. I didn't put it on the production plan, but we always do this, so I'm hoping that you, you can kind of whip this together. The Pac-12 power, power rankings. I got it for you. All right. No problem. If I can get my notes up. All right. Shockingly, number 12. Oregon State Beavers. They are atrocious in all facets. They play Washington this week. It's a 27-point line, and the only way they're covering is if Washington decides not to try. So that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Number 11, I have Arizona. Uh, Honestly, a decent game against Utah last week, but I felt like they left a lot of opportunities out on the field. They're better than this, but for this current ranking, I have number 11 overall. Oregon gets number 10 this week. Can't be losing to ASU. That was soft. Their defense isn't good. We thought it wasn't good. Um, they were just overhyped and felt the need to put them in number 10 just to knock them down a little bit. Jim Levitt's laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah. Arizona State, uh, they're up there. Obviously, they won, they won that game. There's a lot of opportunities for them. Um, that, you know, that was big for them because they could have started 0-5 in conference play pretty easily or even 0-6. So to get off to a good jump there after a rough non-conference schedule is nice. Offensively, they're pretty good. It's just a matter of can they stop somebody. Speaking of not being able to stop people, UCLA, uh, rough start so far this year. Pretty disappointing overall, I would say, what, what they've been able to do so far. Uh, Colorado coming into town, they if they don't win that game, they're going to be in a lot of trouble for the rest of the year. Colorado's next, 3-1, and one, obviously ended up getting knocked out pretty good by Washington. Um, they haven't really looked great in a game yet, so it's hard to put them too much higher than this at this point. Come on, you're our fan correspondent. That's the first time you've ever say, said they with Colorado. Uh, I don't know about that. Oh, maybe. I don't know. California, Are you getting professional on us, Tyler? No, definitely not. That, that will never happen. California's next. Uh, still, I think they've been very impressive to me so far this year. Obviously, 3-0 non-conference. Didn't see that coming at all. And held up their own against USC as well. And uh, you know, I think it was 30-20 to 20 was the final there. Uh, so they covered, and uh, defensively they look really stout. So I think they're going to be a team that's surprised overall at the end of the year in the standings. Uh, Stanford, I have number five overall. Disappointing start to the year. They already have two losses, uh, but I think they have a chance about back. And Bryce Love is a freaking monster, man. So they keep giving him the rock. I think they'll be fine long term. Next two I have are Washington State and Utah. Honestly, haven't loved really what either of these two teams have done so far this year, but they're unblemished, and there aren't many of those left in the conference, so they kind of are up here by default at this point. Uh, Washington State has USC this week, so they can prove me wrong. Utah still hasn't really played anybody. Uh, Quarterbacks hurt now. Defensively, they're really good. Offensively, they've been better than I expected, but a little inconsistent. Uh, USC, number two. Again, they have a been overly impressive so far, either outside of that one Stanford game they dominated. Uh, offensively, they got to get a little bit better. Donald's throwing too many picks. So we'll see. I think they're a little more vulnerable maybe than people thought going into week two of the Pac-12. And then Washington, number one, um, looked pretty dominant overall. I thought they have talent all over the field. Their running back is a stud. We already knew that. Jake Browning, I mean, he's still not I – don't, I don't love him for the NFL, but he doesn't make mistakes and – does what he needs to do out on the field, lets everybody else do the work, and then defensively they just got studs at all three levels. And I don't see a ton of people scoring points on them this year. Obviously everybody that's listening to this podcast wants Colorado to find some way to fix some of those offensive issues, get into the Pac-12 championship game. If that doesn't happen as a football fan, don't you have to cheer for Washington and USC to meet in that championship game? That would be a hell of a football game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think those are two clear favorites right now. Um, we'll see if Washington State was able to throw a wrench into that maybe this week. You know, they'd be five and zero with wins over USC that have two conference wins. Uh, a lot of their, I think they're they're still in the middle. Of, I think they start five or six of their games in a row are all at home. Uh, so that's kind of crazy. You don't see that a ton. 
So they have to go on the road late, so we'll see if they drop off a little. But I think right now it's looking pretty obvious that Washington and USC are likely to meet. We had one other question from a fan. I wanted to hold this out until after your Pac-12 power rankings because it's a different type of topic. AG and AU said, Adam, I would like to hear your and Tyler's thoughts on the unfolding investigation into college basketball. Is it possible to connect with William Whalen about this? I had heard from him about shady recruiting around Deron Davis. Will Indiana be implicated in this probe? So this is a topic we should probably spend a few minutes on because this is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, I guess first I'll lead with this, Tyler. Do you think that this can really actually clean up college basketball recruiting? Well, in this way, sure. I mean, people will find other ways to get things done. They always do. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. It's not a surprise to anybody. It's just a matter of someone actually caring to go after it. Uh, you know, I, the threats of 80 years in jail and stuff like that are a little outlandish for me. Like, I understand you have to do some of this stuff in order to get guys. It's part of the culture of basketball. And not just basketball, football too. Um, now, obviously, Colorado runs a squeaky clean program. And, it, and in this case, it looks good for them. But in the previous 10 years, it's hurt them a bunch too. Yeah. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword there. I mean, you have to be able to do some things to get some of these guys. And we haven't been willing to do that. So now it looks good. And I think, obviously, it'll benefit us in the next few years because we're not going to be implicated in any of this. I can pretty much guarantee you. Uh, as far as the Duran Davis stuff, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me a whole lot if it. Well, Adidas if it, is yeah, implicated right. in this, obviously. Yes, exactly. And it would. There's been a lot of rumors behind the Duran Davis stuff. It would be shocking to me if it wasn't brought up at some point. I'll I do that. think Will was one of the first people that said, "Don't expect him to come to see you for that reason." Basically, yep. mm-hmm. um, when Jeff Buzdelic was a head coach at CU, every once in a while, and, and naturally it would happen after a loss, but we would come up, get our recorders after the post game press conference, and this happened at least a half dozen times. He would kind of look at, are, are all those things off, talking about our recorders, and you would start pointing out guys on the other team, and of course Baylor, every time they came to town, this happened, and he would talk about what this player got, what that player got. Did he know that with 100% certainty? I don't know, but he sure seemed confident that he knew what they got. The fact that this was allowed to happen for as long as it did is, is unbelievable. Right, especially in the NCAA when they're trying to nitpick everything at this point. You would fit, you would figure this stuff would have been brought to light earlier. A lot of people are going to be in a world of hurt. I mean, Patino's probably going to get a show cost, if I had to guess. Um, a lot of, you know, Tony Bland at USC is known as probably one of the great recruiters in the country. It's, I will say it's not surprising to see him caught up in this as well, though. Uh, Arizona being involved, again, not not very surprising at all. Uh, Auburn too, right? Bruce Pearl. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, like shocking. You know, what I, you know what I mean? Like, wow, weird. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these coaches are going to be done forever. I think a lot of these programs are going to be given three to five year postseason bans. So you're going to see a lot of teams you aren't used to seeing in the NCAA tournament yeah. at the very least. Now there were four assistants to this point that have been arrested, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can pretty much guarantee that it runs a lot deeper than that. Oh yeah, you're going to get into double digits. I feel pretty confident. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, do you have any other thoughts on this? I mean, obviously, this this if if anything, it's going to benefit Colorado going forward. Oh sure. And yeah. can they all of a sudden go fishing in that McDonald's All American pool? Yeah, I mean, yeah. If the stakes are even, it helps your case for sure. I mean, I don't know if they're going to get all the way up to. The- Downs all Americans, but they can be getting guys ranked fifty. We haven't done a whole lot of that um, in this program, you know. I mean, I don't. It's hard to until you get more detail. Details, sorry, it's hard to really say exactly where this is going to go. But it looks really bad, and it's not shocking that it looks bad uh, if you really dive into this stuff or even just you know use common sense. You know, a lot of these things are going on. I mean, I saw Michael Beasley had a quote today. He's like, "Wow, you guys are really just getting caught up on this, huh?" And someone quoted it, I forget who it was, with just, you think I played in Manhattan, Kansas for free? <laughs> I was just like, yeah, that makes, yeah, exactly. It's like situations like that. Yeah. Tad Bull gave some quotes to Pat Rooney, and it was basically, he said, look, I don't like wish ill will on other people, but you know he had to feel oh, yeah. really good about this finally getting exposed. Yeah, he had an office chair party last night for sure. 
All right, anything else you want to throw out there, Tyler? How's the betting pod going for you guys? Oh, it was poorly for me this week, for sure. But overall, I'm still above above money. And Tyler had a great week last week. He was 11-2. So um, it's going pretty well, getting it dialed in. We're going to start using our spreadsheet system here probably this upcoming week or next week. So that'll be interesting to follow those. But, you know, if you guys are interested in that topic, feel free to follow us. I think at the very least it's good information on the games. Yeah. You had your other free balling podcast with the Washington crew, kind of a collaboration. Yeah. You guys were too nice to each other. Dude, they were cool. donating money to their charity now. They were cool. I've always, for just to be honest, I've always liked Washington. Um, I don't know if it's because I went to a purple high school that's nickname was the Huskies or what, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I like their program. I like their coach. I've always enjoyed watching them play. Like, I, They're probably, outside of USC because of my brother, they're probably my favorite Pac-12 program, so... And they were cool. They obviously invited us onto their show and, yeah, I mean, gave them a bunch of money, which was awesome. I couldn't believe the number that we donated. I wish we donated money to ourselves for all of our podcasts. Remind me, what was the cause there again? Uh, so it's basically, the, it's in Sinaloa, Mexico. This guy, he lived down there for a while in the early 2000s and he was working at a local YMCA, for lack of a better term, teaching kids how to play American football and they had equipment that was 20 years old. So when he moved back to Washington, he decided to start a fund that basically pays one kid to come up and check out Washington, go to a game with his family, and then they give all the kids new gear every year. So so to like help them, you know, help raise awareness of the sport in Mexico. And so they do a big donation fundraiser every single year, and we decided to throw out a jar, and we got almost four hundred bucks. Very cool on a whim. So that was pretty fun. Very cool. Well, we've once again managed to go through an entire podcast without politics getting involved. It's very hard to do that nowadays. Are these are these hurricanes done for about, what, about three weeks there? It's like every time you turn the TV on, there's another one rolling through somewhere. Probably not. I bet we'll see another one somewhere along the way. All right. Well, that's it for this show. But definitely check into buffstampede.com. I caught up with Hassan Hippolyte, the Buff Stop Prep safety target, after his official visit to Boulder last weekend. Also talked to Kyle Ford, the top-ranked receiver prospect in California for next cycle. And then Kyle McCall did a good visit report on Texas A&M commit Dominique Livingston, who's strongly considering the buffs. And I also caught up with 2017 CU signing Jalen Sammy, who's gray-shirting. Look for that on the site this week. Each week I produce a Tracking the Future piece that basically gives you updates on how all the buffs' verbal pledges are doing during, during their season. So... Please either stay subscribed to buffstampede.com or give us a try so we can keep providing you with that comprehensive coverage of the team. Tyler, thanks again for your participation here. We'll be back next week. And uh, for our sake, I can't outwardly root for CU. It's not allowed. But, gosh, I really don't want to go through another week with uh, a fan base that's freaking out. So please, Colorado Buffaloes, show show, show a pulse out there in Pasadena. Yes, that would be great. Offensively, let's do something. I don't think it necessarily has to be a win, but it's got to be at least competitive, exciting football game. Uh, otherwise, I'm taking a hiatus from the board because you guys are driving me nuts. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Well, thanks to all of you for tuning in.